Welcome to the final episode, the 27th episode of the first season of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. This one will be a little bit different. I'm not interviewing anyone this time. This is just me. And I'm going to try and do a recap, a sort of year in review, as it were. When I set out to start this podcast, there was no particular area of focus beyond the future. I didn't set out necessarily to focus just on gaming. I certainly didn't think I was going to be talking about the metaverse or NFTs or blockchain quite as much as I did. I just wanted to talk to smart people about the future of gaming and, and entertainment and see what emerged. And as I booked guests, frankly, most of them were just people in my network or two degrees of separation away. And most of it came from LinkedIn. I would be monitoring LinkedIn and I would see someone say something cool and smart and I would think, hey, I should talk to that person and reach out and say, hey, what do you think about joining the podcast? Got a couple of in invitees who joined from Twitter is doing the same thing. And so there also wasn't a particular plan in terms of the order or the themes that I would cover. And yet when I look back over the year and I look at all these amazing guests that we had on the show, four pretty strong themes emerged from the guests and, and, and their areas of interest and focus. And so what I thought would be fun to do in this year in review would be to go over those themes, to thank the guests and call out some of the particular lessons that I learned inside of those themes. So I'll begin by listing the themes themselves. These are the four themes that I feel emerged over the year. The first is lessons from established professional creators. So I had lots of seasoned professionals, some who've been in the industry for 30 plus years on the podcast, sharing with me their highlights of their career, their thought processes, trends that they perceive and where they think the future is going. And, and some really interesting themes emerged there. The second theme would be innovations from technologists. And I use that term from a position of deep love. I don't mean to be dismissive at all. I think technologists are amazing. I think the world we live in today owes a lot to people who have a deep love and a deep passion for technology and using technology to push the limits of what can be done with software and hardware. And we've brought on some really innovative thinkers who sit very comfortably at the sort of cutting edge of technology and are very happy living in that space, pushing the limits of what's possible. And so there's been some really interesting insight there. The third would be this theme that I'm calling the democratization of creativity. And there's a few things that fall into that category that I'll go through, but this touches upon everything from the creator economy, to user-generated content, to mods, to how we train the next generation of creators, how we involve communities in our stories, how we engage communities, how we build product with the communities, how we make more and more people feel like they have a stake and an ownership in the vision for the product in question. So in some ways, it, it's an extension of that first theme, the sort of lessons learned from established professional creators. And it's sort of taking that and 
signal boosting it, multiplying it by a thousand or 10,000 in order to really tap into the whatever wisdom of the crowds, as it were. And then the fourth theme would be a a bit of a catch-all, but it's what I'm calling our digital future. This has been an incredibly buzzworthy year in terms of, frankly, technology buzzwords. You can't blink without having someone talk about the metaverse. You can't open a newspaper without reading an article about Bitcoin or blockchain or Ethereum. You can't, you know, cross the street without having someone talk about whatever, the the growing shift towards digital, shall we say. And uh, there were a bunch of guests who talked very passionately and very insightfully about this evolving digital future. And, And so I think that was a really interesting theme to cover. Each one should probably take me about five minutes, maybe a little bit more. The whole episode should be about a half an hour, uh, the shortest episode I've ever done. (laughs) And hopefully it'll be a, a good year in review. So thank you very much for listening and let's dive in. So I thought I would open with that the first theme, Lessons from Established Professional Creators. And when I looked back at the list of invitees here, uh, obviously there's the most recent episode with Sam Lake. And we had one of the funniest interviews of last year with Laszlo, ex-narrative director at Rockstar. Of course, we spoke with Raphael Van Lirup. We spoke with Angie Bo uh, and Ted Price, founder and president of Insomniac Games. One of the earliest interviews I did with Brenda Romero, of course, the Reggie Fisame was sort of an early score that, that really helped, I don't know, launch this, this podcast. I owe a lot to Reggie. His name pulled in a lot of other participants. So thank you, Reggie, for that. Victor Lucas, who's obviously been deeply involved in following the gaming industry and covering game creators for years. And our first ever interview with Neil Blomkamp. All of these sit in this category of established professional creators. And if you look back at this list, frankly, there's no one on here who's been working for less than 20 years. These are all people who have spent almost the entirety of their professional career making usually AAA games with no sign of slowing down, which is amazing. You hear so much about the gaming industry and crunch and difficult working conditions and all of the problems associated with making these big, you know, exciting quote unquote AAA games. And obviously you hear stories about people who don't want to do it, who run out of steam, who decide it's not worth it. And yet this list of people that I had the pleasure of of spending time with, frankly, sound as motivated today as I imagine they did in their very first year. These are an incredibly passionate group of people who are exceptionally excited about creating and sharing their creations and sharing their vision with the world. It's evidently clear to me that despite all of the talk about, well, play to win, metaverse, crypto, blockchain, even just free to play, the future of AAA remains exceptionally strong. AAA, if I had to make a prediction, is not going away anytime soon. And anyone who suggests that AAA is dead and dying and that free-to-play is the only way forward or that whatever, the metaverse is the only way forward, frankly, hasn't played any of the games made (laughs) by some of the guests that we've spoken to over the past year. 
That said, the typical box product business model of getting up 100 plus developers working on a project for three plus years and gambling it all on a $59.99 retail box launch with a two to three you know month product window after which people have moved on to the next big thing, of course, has a lot of challenges and it has had challenges for years. Now, live operations, DLC, games as a service, a lot of these things have opened up new opportunities inside the sort of more typical console space. And we're also seeing really interesting business models like, frankly, Xbox Cloud and various other cloud streaming platforms that are making a real interesting run on the sort of Netflix of gaming opportunity. And there have been multiple guests in this category, most notably Victor Lucas, who who sort of identified Xbox Cloud as perhaps one of the single most exciting innovations to hit gaming in, in, in years. And I have to say, as a longtime subscriber of Xbox Cloud, the accessibility of it is amazing. I literally played Halo, the most recent Halo, on my iPhone yesterday just to show my son that it works. So if you haven't taken a look at whether it be NVIDIA's cloud streaming service or Xbox's cloud streaming service, and you're still scratching your head about how subscription services plus AAA gaming can go hand in hand, I'd encourage you to take a look. It's a pretty amazing user experience, and it's just getting better, frankly, every month. I also learned a lot about tools and processes and how seriously professional developers take the improvement of their craft. Every one of every person on this list who I mentioned earlier would probably be the first to say they're nothing without their team. Their team is nothing without the tools and the processes and that it is the improvement of those day after day, year after year, that's driving the maturity of the industry, that's making for better and better product, that's allowing frankly, the industry to not just, you know, survive, but thrive. So there was a lot of talk about how important it is to continue to iterate on the tools, the pipelines, the processes, so that we don't have to have quite as much crunch. We don't have to have quite as much burnout inside of the gaming industry. Diversity absolutely came up. Ted Price and Angie Bo both spoke very eloquently about that. And frankly, the fact that diverse creators making diverse content is critically important to move the industry forward if not to pick on past games here but just you know as an example if we want to move beyond the stereotype of big muscle-bound white guys running around killing people with chainsaw guns and that that sort of is we have to make sure that the people making the games the people making decisions about what games to be made see more and play more and think differently. And frankly, the best and easiest way we know how to do that is to make sure that there is diversity in those sort of top level decision makers representing alternate points of view. And I I, I think we have a long way to go. My feeling is the industry is beginning to move forward here, that we're beginning to see a lot more interesting representation inside the games that the heroes themselves probably speak to a much wider, more diverse audience. That it's a lot easier to see yourself in the hero across a larger variety of games now, regardless of your gender, age, ethnicity, culture, etc. And I think that's a good thing. 
Of course, there continues to be a lot of challenges inside the industry itself, still coming out in the industry of, of people just generally being nasty, and that needs to change. And I think shining a spotlight on that is the best way to make that change. And frankly, I'm really happy that we're seeing a lot of people calling out the problems inside the industry, inside the teams as they happen. I think it's the only way to weed that stuff out. And I guess in, in just summary, whatever happens to the technologies and the business models of tomorrow, these leaders and their teams will set the bar. They'll set the bar for the quality. They'll set the bar for the letter level of engagement, the level of immersion. There will always be the kind of quote unquote tentpole products that everyone, frankly, amateur creators, professional creators, indies look up to as the sort of quality benchmark that they draw inspiration from. And so I, I think it, it's amazing to see the fact that even after 20 years, these incredibly experienced professionals are so excited to continue making those incredibly high quality experiences. To me, that's a, a wonderful sign for the future. The second theme, innovations from technologists. So in this section, I spoke with people like David Usher, talking about AI, chatbots, AI twins. Yves Jacquier from Ubisoft, who runs their La Forge program that's highly focused on AI. Kim Pallister from Intel. Mike Pappas from Modulate.ai, obviously focused on AI. Timu Toke from Ready Player Me or Wolf 3D previously. And of course, Alicia Ledeker, who represented the augmented reality, virtual reality side of things. All of these quote-unquote technologists have spent much of their career, like I said, sitting at that cutting edge of what technology can do to create really exciting and innovative new services and products. And so some of the things that I learned from them, frankly, AI is everywhere in game development today. The tools that developers are using, a lot of them are powered by AI. The services on the back end that determine what ad you're going to see, what TikTok you're going to see, what Roblox game should be recommended to you. A lot of those are powered by, by AI. And increasingly, we're seeing AI begin to make its way into the cornerstone of the play itself. AI Dungeon was brought up multiple times by multiple podcasts guests as a really innovative use of AI. Replicant.ai, while maybe a little bit less of a game, is a highly gamified chatbot that was brought up multiple times. These are products that lean into the fact that they are 100% dependent on AI, that there is no developer or writer or creator behind the scenes choosing what's said or who says what. This is AI at its finest as the sort of back of the box feature, as it were. And we talk a lot about this movie, Her. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's amazing. And it's not that far off. You take Replica.ai, you pair it with the you know power of whatever GPT-3's AI dungeon kind of thing. You mix that with something like Fabricant for its auto-generated voices. Within a couple of years, probably, you're at something that could sound like Her. I mean, maybe it won't have quite the sort of 
general purpose artificial intelligence that the AI in her did. But in terms of the user experience, it'll be darn close. So it's amazing to see, at least from a voice point of view and a sort of chat point of view, just how incredibly advanced AI is getting and, and how sophisticated these experiences are already starting to get. There was a, a fair amount of talk about how AI can and is helping to create stuff, but that there's still a long journey before it's making whole worlds and games for us. This is something David Usher and, and Yves-Jacques both mirrored in different ways takes a special type of designer, a special type of thinker, frankly, to make a product where AI can truly shine, to make an AI dungeon, as it were. And that's involving a lot of educating and, and frankly, in some cases, re-educating. It, it, it's a very different process and not everyone in the industry is yet primed to think about working with AI in that way. And frankly, it's still a bit of a pipe dream to say, hey, AI, make me a first-person shooter game, go. Or or make me a, a house that feels like a, I don't know, mid-century modernist uh, house. Make me a Frank Lloyd Webb house. Like, it, it's still quite far from reality to have AI do something like that entirely on it. And yet, AI co-creation is here today. It came up again on a couple of different podcasts. There's a really interesting tool available to professional or semi-professional developers right now called Promethean.ai that shows a really interesting sort of innovative future whereby AI and the creators collaborate together in order to make something really special and make something really quick, but that the insight, the spark, the originality is still coming from an individual human AI is helping speed things up, as it were, and whatever, make it faster to realize the vision of the creator, but they're not necessarily serving as that creative spark themselves. And there was a fair amount of talk about how AI will likely help unlock that same creativity in other creators, i.e. eventually players. So right now, obviously, Lots of tools for the professional developer, increasingly some tools for the semi-professional developer. But there was a fair amount of talk and speculation about a day, probably in the not too distant future, where there are AI tools to help service the player itself. And as you're engaged in a game and possibly creating things in a game, AI is helping democratize that process, make it easier for everyone to bring their vision to life. And that ties in very nicely. I hope, to the third theme, the democratization of creativity. So here I spoke with Tracy Fullerton, Scott Rismatis, Peter Yang from Reddit, one of the handful of non-game developers who were on the podcast, Jeff Gomez, specialist in community and transmedia storytelling, Blake Robbins, who has a lot of really interesting insights into the creator economy, Simon Pullman, another non-game developer, but an absolute pleasure to speak to because he's such a huge nerd. The only lawyer that I interviewed this year. There was Stella Wang, who, with her team at Dazzle Rocks, has a very strong focus on community and, and social. And in fact, they're building what they call a mobile-first social MMO. And I would say one of my 
most enjoyable interviews because of how unique it was with Corey Strasberger, who I would say is in some ways an extreme case of the kind of creator. Obviously, Corey is a professional developer. He's been making VFX and, and games and whatnot professionally for many years. But in as far as how I interviewed him, he really represented an individual creator who was doing everything himself with freely available tools. And to me, that was hugely inspiring to see how what's possible when you have a little bit of know-how, a little bit of experience and the right tools. And I, in the same way that I think the established professional creators help set the quality benchmark for the, the creators of tomorrow, I, th I think the work that Corey was doing, is doing, does that as well uh, at an individual level. And so when I look for the common themes to try and extract from all of these guests, I definitely got this feeling of sort of creators as the new celebrities. The Mr. Beasts of tomorrow might not be YouTube creators. They may well be video game creators. They might be Roblox creators or Minecraft creators who probably have a strong social media presence as well, but are also just creating incredibly compelling content and sharing it with their fans, sharing it with their communities. Obviously, the tools and the training and the visibility and the incentives, all of these things that are, are growing and getting better and better every day are leading to a, a significant growth in the numbers and frankly, the quality and the output that the creators are, 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 are bringing to their craft. Take any quote unquote proto metaversal product out there. Take uh, Minecraft as an example, take Zepedo as an example, and you're gonna see a level of quality in the craftsmanship that's going into these creations today that is whatever light years up beyond what it was a few years ago and part of that comes from experience part of that comes from these people have been using this platform for a while but i think a lot of it also comes from the fact that because there is that strong convergence between the incentivization the visibility and frankly the network effects of being able to promote their products to larger and larger audiences groups or individuals creators who know that this can be a very compelling side hustle and or eventually full-time career. And so there's some really compelling product being created by these people. I got this strong feeling like there is a push in the industry, I guess, to sort of broaden the definition of what it means to be a creator. Once upon a time, you had developers and you had fans. And some developers embraced their fans and some developers didn't. And I get a sense these days that there is a, a growing movement to sort of recognize the fans, the community, as creators in their own right. Fan art is a creation. It's a form of creation. It, in some cases, it's even a canonical form of creation. It's embraced by and sanctioned and made canonical by the developers themselves. Reaction videos are a, a great way for fans to, to be creators themselves centered around a product that they love. Fan fiction, fan art, reaction videos, etc. All of these are low-hanging fruits in some ways for fandom, for community to become fandom and for fandom to become creators and to be deeply engaged and recognized as creators inside of 
a franchise or a platform or property that they love. And I, I think there's a lot more recognition of how important that form of creators are to successes on some of these bigger projects and platforms. And I think the projects that embrace that, that embrace their community of creators and embrace their fandom have huge opportunities for love, engagement, and virality. Obviously, there are challenges, right? Obviously, there are legal challenges. There are copyright challenges. There can be canonical challenges. There can be brand ownership challenges. There can be negativity and vitriol in some of the most fanatical communities. And, and so obviously, giving your fans a loud voice, giving them a platform to speak from can open up certain challenges. But it can also create really deeply engaged communities. And if you listen to your community and you engage with them and you make them a part of the process, if Peter Yang and Jeff Gomez, for example, are to be believed, the sky is your oyster. Sorry, <laughs> the world is your oyster and the sky is the limit. There's just a ton of opportunity to do. And so the teams and the products that are brave enough to embrace that have an unfair competitive advantage. And then finally, the futurists, the Our Digital Future theme. Three interviews here really stood out in particular, Ryan Gill, Piers Kicks, and Matthew Ball. Now, HarperCollins recently named NFT the word of the year. And anyone, like I said, who basically has used the internet this year probably understands why. Uh, blockchain and NFT and play to earn are everywhere. I literally cannot launch a browser without being inundated by news about how blockchain is changing the world forever. But I have to assume that the word metaverse was probably in the running. It was probably a close second. And frankly, it was probably a close second even before Mark Zuckerberg rebranded Facebook and, and called the whole thing meta. And so I'll talk a little bit about crypto, a little bit about blockchain, and a little bit about metaverse as I wrap up this year in review. The metaverse might be a little bit hard to wrap your head around. We did a whole episode on it with Matthew Ball, and I'm, I'm sure his thinking has evolved since then. Matthew's a smart guy. He's talked to a lot of smart people. But it, it's still, it's huge, right? I mean, it, it's as big as the internet. It's the precursor to the mobile internet. It's what comes next. It's a very large concept to try and wrap your head around, particularly if you're trying to figure out how do we get from here to there to get to this potentially open, highly interoperable digital world where we all live and act and do all of our online activities in a fully embodied virtual presence. The ready player me vision of the metaverse, the, the snow crash vision of the metaverse where everything can be done online and everything is interconnected. There's a lot of dots between here and there. There's a lot of steps. It might be easier to wrap your head around the concept of a metaverse rather than the metaverse. And when you start thinking about that, frankly, there's lots of metaverses already today. Roblox absolutely could fit that bill, could be called a metaverse. Now, frankly, Minecraft probably could as well. You've got character persistency. You can do a lot of different activities of different types. 
You've got account level persistency, so you can take things from one experience to another, things you've earned or gained inside of one work in the other. In some ways, what people dream about when they talk about the metaverse is what Roblox has inside of its walled garden writ large across the entire internet. But again, there are lots of these sort of proto-metaversal products out there already. And there, there seems to be reason to believe that these virtual worlds where people spend lots of their digital time may well become increasingly akin to the, the, the super app, obviously very popular and, and, and powerful in, in some Asian markets today, where you have the WeChat style game and chat and order food and bank, etc., all inside a single app, all from with one download. The concept of the super app hasn't quite taken hold in the West yet, but obviously there's some incredibly powerful examples of this working in the East. And it's foreseeable that you could imagine Roblox becoming a super app if they implement banking or shopping inside Roblox, increasingly becoming the metaverse and they're increasingly becoming that style of the super app. So there's a lot of really interesting insight about how gaming-led virtual worlds can increasingly lay the foundation of the metaverse by following in the sort of um, super app model. That said, in a hypothetical five-year time frame where, you know, Epic has, has created this ecosystem of connected experiences around Fortnite and Harmonix and all of their other acquisitions and, and Roblox has its super powerful metaverse it's not super clear to me how those two things suddenly become interoperable. How could I possibly take my Fortnite character and everything that I've earned inside of that metaverse and potentially bring it into the Roblox metaverse? That would be a pretty big deal between those two players. Probably a full-on acquisition, which is obviously difficult to imagine at their size and scale. So that fabled dream of sort of true metaversal interoperability where I can have that one app to rule them all, that one experience that kind of can bind everything together. It's not entirely clear to me, nor frankly, many of the people that I spoke to, how these major players could come together to make that happen. And that has led to, or I guess somehow tied into, uh, a huge groundswell in people interested in and frankly pivoting towards Web 3.0 or truly decentralized technologies of which blockchain plays a pivotal role. And I'll talk a little bit more about blockchain in just a second. The vision for the open metaverse does not have a single gatekeeper. There is no Epic. There is no Roblox. There is no Microsoft who owns the metaverse or owns 60% of the metaverse. Web 3.0 is, in some people's mind, the evolution of Web 1.0, with Web 2.0 being an, a blip an abnormality, but that the web wants to be open. It wants to be free. It wants to be a network of interconnected nodes of services. And that by truly embracing that inter that openness, that's how we'll get to interoperability vis-a-vis -vis standards, etc. that all the various participants in this decentralized web 3.0 version of the metaverse all choose to embrace. And 
fundamental to that is cryptocurrencies and blockchain in general. And I'm not going to turn this into uh, a sales pitch for, for either of those, or, or frankly, even a lesson about either of those. The conversation that I had with Ryan Gill and Pierce Kicks, I think were probably um, great places to start, but there have been so many millions of hours on podcasts dedicated to diving deep into crypto and blockchain that frankly, I don't think there's anything I can do to add to that at this point in time. But I would argue that love it or leave it, hate it or, or whether you're convinced or not, that it's a good thing. It's hard to argue that crypto and blockchain deserves at least a seat at the table, if not the podium position for the largest disruption to hit gaming in years. I would argue it's every bit as big as free-to-play. It's every bit as big as digital distribution. Frankly, it's every bit as big probably even as the mobile phone. It has the potential to completely disrupt the way gaming businesses are run. And it's not necessarily going to happen tomorrow, and it might not ever happen if it's not done properly. But it has that potential, and I think a lot of people began to see that potential this year with games like Axie Infinity, with games like Blancos, with games, etc. Again, the list is a million miles long. It's extremely controversial, but so too was free-to-play. Saying that it's good yet, from a UX point of view, but in the same way that a lot of the problems that plagued free-to-play in the early days were eventually shall we say, solved or improved. And there were more and more people who became true believers and you know shifted their careers and their energies and their creative focus towards free-to-play. It's imaginable that the same thing can and will happen to type games as well, where more and more people will come on board as, for example, the technologies get greener, as the securities get tighter, the UX gets tighter so that there are more fewer and fewer sort of security flaws as it moves away from pure speculation towards maybe just in general more overall entertaining products. All of these things you could imagine might lead to even more people jumping on that bandwagon and, and, and starting to, again, bring their, their creative vision to games that some way, shape or form use cryptocurrency or blockchain as as an underpinning. That said, I don't think it's clear to anyone yet how the major platforms, the Apples, the Googles, the Steams, and crypto projects will go hand in hand. Obviously, there is some disconnect between how a crypto game would work and the benefits of a crypto game and the very concept of the gatekeeper who's taking 30% of every transaction. Those two things don't necessarily dovetail all that well. But there's a lot of really smart people working on it every day. And it stands to reason that given everything that's going on in the space, we will see someone figure it out. Some platform, some developer will begin to build the bridges there that will see some of the, whatever, benefits of blockchain, of the major platforms and everything that they do and and everything that we owe them in terms of really helping bring gaming and entertainment to such a huge mass market. So hopefully those bridges will get built in the not too distant future. And 
that's my summary, my year in review for the Tomorrow with Rovio. I tried to come up with a single theme that encapsulated every conversation that I've had. The one thing that binds it all together, whether you're a AAA developer, a crypto developer, a metaversal futurist, an AI innovator, what's the one thing that binds everyone I spoke to that binds them all together? And I think that word is excitement. I've been in this industry now for 20 years. I got my first start making games in the year 2000, so 21 years now, at a small, now defunct mobile developer here in Montreal called Airborne Entertainment. My first ever game was on a technology now since defunct called WAP, which was a precursor to the modern era of smartphones. And I was making video games on tiny little quarter inch black and white screens. That's how I cut my teeth in the gaming industry 21 years ago. And in the 21 years that I've been making games professionally, talking to and working with quite literally hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of professional developers, I've never felt the excitement for the future of the industry that I felt this year. Everyone I talked to was bullish. Everyone was excited about where gaming was going. Everyone thought the future was just looking amazing. Everyone was excited to see what they could do next year. Nobody looked burnt out. Nobody looked tired. Nobody wanted out. Nobody wanted to get a quote unquote real job at a bank. Everyone was passionately committed to making this, frankly, the best industry in the world. And so my message to all of you listening is if you're working in the industry, thank you for making 2021 so incredibly exciting. Here's to 2022. Let's make it even better. As always, I'm your host, Ben Mattis. Thank you so much for listening to this first season of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I can't wait to get started next year and bring you the next exciting batch of guests. Bye.